questions. Uh, I just want to have a few more few more remarks about conversion. Then I'm going to go into a new uh, new subject. Uh, we were discussing last week uh, Yanim of Geirus, and uh, you'll recall uh, we talked about uh, converting children below bar mitzvah, below bas mitzvah, and then we talked about the requirements for grown-ups, for adults, and then the last thing we talked about, I think, was about pregnant women. The, the, there are some unique problems when a woman is converted. Uh, when she is pregnant. Now the Gemara does tell us that when a pregnant woman goes to the mikvah to convert, that is a valid con- uh, tevila, that's a valid immersion for the fetus as well. So even though the fetus was not in the water, if the mother is in the water, that is a valid tevila for the fetus. Even though there's a chatzitza, right? What is chatzitza? You're not supposed to have anything between you and the water. So how could the mother's body not be a blockage between the baby and the water? But the Gemara says, since the baby needs the mother to live, the baby cannot live without the mother, the mother's body is not a chatzitza. Right? The word chatzitza is a barrier. So if you recall, just to go over a little bit, very quickly, that conceptually there's some uncertainty. Everybody admits, in other words, the bottom line is that if a woman converts while pregnant and gives birth to a girl, the girl is Jewish. But the question is, why is the girl Jewish? Is the girl Jewish because she is a converted girl? In other words, since the fetus underwent the conversion, the girl is a georet? Or no, since the fetus was born, or since the baby was born, after the mother converted, the baby is a Jew by birth. In other words, the girl is for sure Jewish, but the question is, is she Jewish by birth or is she Jewish by conversion? Now, there are a number of important differences here. Uh, if she's Jewish by birth or Jewish by conversion. And again, just to go over it quickly, difference one, can she marry a Kohen? The is, a girl who converts to Judaism cannot marry a Kohen. But a girl that is born from a convert to Judaism can marry a Kohen. So if the idea is her mother converted and she's just being born from a Jew, she could marry a Kohen. If she herself has undergone a conversion process, she could not marry a Kohen. That is difference one. Difference two, if it's a boy instead of a girl, a a pregnant woman converts and the boy is born. Now, a boy requires for conversion brismila as well as immersion in the mikvah. So if the idea is that the boy is a convert, he hasn't completed his conversion until he has a bris, uh, which means, in other words, he would actually be a goy until his brismila, uh, as opposed to uh, if he is born from a Jewish woman and doesn't need a conversion, he would be born Jewish. Uh, difference three, so I gave you one difference for a girl, one difference for a boy. Difference three would apply both to boy and girl. And that is, when they reach bar mitzvah for a boy or bas mitzvah for a girl, do they have the right to renounce their conversion and say they don't want to be Jewish? If halachically they're born Jewish, then obviously there's no option to get out of it. If, on the other hand, it is deemed 
that they underwent a conversion in the uterus uh, by the mother going to the mikvah, then it's like any other baby that is converted and they would be able to renounce. So basically there's a big, big machlokas if halachically uh, a, uh, a fetus that was in the mother's womb when she converted, is that considered a converted fetus or a born Jewish fetus or born Jewish baby? And that would have these three practical differences. Because of this, because of these uncertainties, this is an uncertain halachic question, generally speaking, a Basin will not want to convert a woman while she is pregnant. Uh, they will wait until the baby is born uh, and then convert the mother and convert the baby as a baby uh, rather than convert her while she is pregnant because there's a lot of uncertainty. That's, in other words, halachic uncertainty, whether the child is a convert or the child is a born Jew, to avoid that halachic uncertainty, they will wait. Yeah. Why would they just convert the woman while she's pregnant and have the child be considered a convert? Because... That it's only like, like extra stuff. It's not like they're breaking anything by not marrying the No, that's true. That's true. But uh, well, okay. In other words, just be machmir. Mean just be machmir. Right. But but then. Yeah, I understand. But what but, about renouncing? Yeah, renouncing would be a problem. You'd have the other problems too. Oh. Yeah, yeah. The renouncing issue would be a problem. As we want to be sure that uh, they either have the right or don't have the right, and not be an uncertain because if the kid renounces and we're not sure if he has the right to renounce. You don't know if you have a goy or a Jew, right? Not just a ger or a Jew, a goy or a Jew, because once you renounce, when you can renounce, halakhically you're a goy. Mm-hmm. So now let me mention a few other halachos, which are actually general halachos, but you're going to see how they impact on gerus. Do you know this halacha? You heard of this din? That when a woman, not about a ger, a regular Jewish woman, when a Jewish woman is divorced or widowed, she is not allowed to marry for... Th- 90 days for three months. And that's not because of mourning, because the truth of the matter is, uh, when a woman uh, loses a husband, she only has to mourn for 30 days. And in any case, uh, in the case of divorce, there's no mourning. But the reason why the halacha says she has to wait 90 days is we need to know that she is pregnant from her late husband or her former husband, or not pregnant, and it sometimes takes up to 90 days until a pregnancy is recognizable. Now, why do you need to know that? Because here is what the rabbis were afraid of. Let's say a woman gets divorced, and the next week or the next month, she marries a man, which the Torah would allow. And let's say she has a baby after seven months or eight months. We don't know if that is a premature baby to husband number two or a full-term baby to husband number one. In other words, we don't know who the child's father is. And that's a very undesirable situation. So because of this, we wait three months and by that time the pregnancy for sure would be recognizable, if there would be. And if there's no pregnancy, we know that any child the woman has, even if it's early, is from the husband, second husband rather than the first husband. Right? This is a very important halacha. It applies to whether it's widowed or whether it's divorced. A woman must wait 
I'll say 90 days, 90 days before she gets married. Now, even this halach has a lot of complications. Does a woman have to wait if she's like 85 years old? I mean, let's assume she's way beyond the age of being able to have children. Is there a reason for her to have to wait? Uh, let's say she had a hysterectomy. Or let's say she has a pregnancy test. Would that be good enough? If she could, can a woman get married within three months of death or divorce uh, if she has a pregnancy test? How accurate are those tests, right? So these are different shilas. So I, I, I'm not suggesting right now that this is an absolute rule that you always have to wait uh, uh, 90 days, but pregnancy does have to be ruled out because otherwise we might not know if the second, if a child that is born is premature to husband number two or full term or a longer pregnancy of husband number one, but with three months we would know because three months a pregnancy is always going to be recognizable. Okay, now, halacha number two, what if we wait three months and it turns out the woman is pregnant from obviously husband number one? Or even if we don't wait three months, uh, she's, you know, the man divorces or dies while she's pregnant. So you would think, you would think superficially based on what I just said, oh, let her get married right away if she wants because we know this child belongs to husband number one. Actually, no, there's another halacha that a pregnant woman cannot, and this is true whether she's widowed, whether she's divorced, or whether she's out of wedlock. A pregnant woman cannot get married for two years. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, more than that. Two years following the birth. Meaning a woman that's pregnant cannot get married for until the baby is born and the baby is two years old. Now, why is that so? Why is that so? And that also means, by the way, that also means if a woman has a child, she cannot get married till the child is two years old. In other words, uh, these are two different halachas. I can't marry a pregnant woman and I can't marry a woman with a young child until the child reaches the second birthday. Now, the reason might, might be a difficult reason to understand. That is, Chazal assumed that the optimal length of time for nursing a mother to nurse a child is two years. It may be customary in modern society to wean a child earlier than that, but Chazal saw it as extremely beneficial to nurse a child with human mother's milk till the age of two. There is a fear that uh, if a man marries a woman that uh, is pregnant or has a child under two, uh, the husband may try to stop her to nurse to be more focused on his children and the like, and therefore potentially he might put her child at some level of risk, and therefore they basically said she should not marry until the child is old enough to be weaned, and even if he's weaned earlier than two, Chazal say still don't do it because we don't want to encourage women to wean their children before the age of two. Okay, so that's a uh, so we have these three halachas, meaning to say, if the woman doesn't know if she's pregnant, you got to wait three months. If after the three months she's not pregnant, she can get married. If, however, she is pregnant, uh, you actually have to wait the length of the pregnancy plus two years in order to marry because of this halacha that the new husband 
may uh, try to terminate the, the nursing uh, prematurely. Uh, yeah? What is Chazal? I didn't, oh, Chazal, I'm sorry, yeah. So Chazal is an abbreviation, and it stands for Chachomenu, our sages, Zichronam, their memory, Livracha, shall be a blessing. So we don't use the word Chazal for contemporary rabbis, even if they're very great. Chazal is a term that we, in fact, we don't even use it for Rashi or the Rambam. Chazal is the particular term we use for the sages of the Mishnah, the Talmud, and the Medrash, right? So you wouldn't call Rashi, even, I mean, as great as Rashi is, you wouldn't call them Chazal. Chazal is only for the Tanoim, which are the scholars of the Mishnah, and the Amoraim, which are the scholars of the Gemara. Sometimes it comes in a slightly different flavor. Instead of chazal, you'll see razal, which is the same thing. Razal means raboseinu, zechronu mubracha, our rabbis of blessed memory. Okay, chazal, razal. Okay. Um, same thing. It's referring to the same group of people, razal. Yeah, yeah. Um, if you have a real good memory, but, uh, or, well, and a very good ear as well, uh, you may notice that the, the word chazal actually appears in a ketubah, if you've, got, if you've got been to a chasna. So when they read a, uh, when they read, uh, uh, a ketubah, so they actually mention, either, either they'll say chazal in there, or chachameinu zechronu mevracha, so they'll read it for the, the word actually appears in the, uh, in the standard text of a ketubah. Okay? All righty. So now, let me mention another aspect of three months that could apply to conversion, and this is really, really, well, some of it may be really, really crazy, very, very difficult. Uh, that is, when a single woman converts, a single woman converts, she has to wait three, she also has to wait 90 days before she could marry. Now, again, I hope this will not insult anyone. The, the, the basis for this is that Chazal considered a non-Jewish woman to be largely promiscuous. And therefore, it's exact. so even though she's single, but the fear might be that she might be pregnant, and if she marries somebody, uh, and there's a seven month later a child, we're not gonna know, is it from her non-Jewish past or is it from this husband? So every Gioris has to wait 90 days before she could marry. In fact, in most of the certificates, when a woman converts, not all, but some rabbis will write in that she is mutar, she is permitted to marry a Jewish man, except for a Kohen, after 90 days from the date of this certificate. That's a language that often often appears. Uh, yeah? Even if they were married to a Jewish man before, and during their Oh, no, I'll get to that, right? Remember, I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you different scenarios. Right now, I'm talking about a single woman converts. Okay, now, let's talk about a married woman who converts. Right, a married woman who converts. Now, a married woman who converts, if you think about it, can be broken down into two cases. One is, she, she was a guy married to a guy, and they both convert. That's one scenario where it'll happen. Or the other scenario is, which you just said, that she was non-Jewish, married to a Jew, and she's converting. So both cases are possible, right? In other words, not, the one thing you're not going to have is, you're not going to have a woman who converts who remains married to a non-converted guy, because if that's what she's presenting to the base, then they're not going to convert her. 
I mean, they're not going to convert a woman who remains married to a guy. So there's only two possibilities of a married woman. Either uh, she is married to a guy and they're both converting, or she is married to a Jew and she's converting. Okay? So you would think in such a case, since she is staying with the same guy, whether he was a guy or a Jew, she is staying with the same guy, there would be no reason to wait three months before remarrying or, or even just continuing to live with each other. That's what you would think. But in point of fact, as strange as it is for reasons that are a bit complicated, in those cases as well, uh, when a woman converts and her husband converts, or a woman converts and her husband is Jewish, they have to separate, even though they're married, even though they're married, uh, they have to separate three months before they can be together. Now, why is that so? In this case, there's no fear that she's pregnant from somebody else, because we're not assuming adultery, right? That's not our assumption. We assume that any pregnancy she has is from her husband. So what's the problem? Uh, if it's, right? So, you, 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 I just had a question about the separation. They can separate before they convert. Yes, that's correct. They can do it two, they can do it two ways. Yes. You, you'll see why. They can separate before the conversion if they're living together, or they could separate after the conversion. But there has to be a period of three months where they don't have relations with each other. So the reason for this is a bit complicated. And let's, let, let me explain this uh, by the basic halachos, and then you'll understand why you need this separation. And that is, let's say a woman is a non-Jew, and uh, she gets pregnant while she's a non-Jew, and then she converts. Now, we discussed the whole question about, but, but, but the, the kids are going to be Jewish for sure when they're born, right? That's not the question. They will be. Well, I discussed whether they're, you know, whether they're converted Jews or whether they're uh, born Jews. That's fine, but they are going to be Jewish. So here is the problem. Let's say, well, okay, let, let's, take, let's take one consistent example. Let's assume her husband is Jewish. Husband Jewish impregnates non-Jewish woman. She gives birth to a kid. Then after her conversion, uh, he impregnates her again and she gives birth to another kid. So these are two boys. Let's say they're two boys, right? Now, the two boys, you would think, are brothers. They have the same father, the same mother. Halachically, actually, they're only related, they're only uh, maternal brothers. They are not paternal brothers. Why is that so? Because a Jewish man has no paternity to a child that he impregnated from a non-Jew. Okay, are you following me here? In other words, very simple. If a Jewish man impregnates a non-Jewish woman, and let's assume the non-Jewish woman gives birth to a guy, right? Without a conversion, that father is not related to that child. Now, not only is the father not related to that child if the woman doesn't convert, but even if the woman converts, the Jewish man is not related because at the time he impregnated her, she was a non-Jew. 
Okay, this is a halacha that I think a lot of people wouldn't, wouldn't automatically know. Okay, let me say this again. If a Jewish man impregnates a non-Jewish woman, he does not have paternity of the child that is born. And it makes no difference if the woman didn't convert, so the child was born a guy, or even if the woman converted and the child was born a Jew because it was born from a Jewish mother, but the Jewish husband does not have... Now again, technically he would be like an adopted parent. Certainly you'd love him, you know, I mean, you'd honor him. That, that's not the issue I'm talking about. But in terms of strict paternity... But what does that, what that huh? what, Yeah, What does that have to do with anything? With what? What the technical paternity is. Oh, it has to do with a lot. Uh, number one, it has to do with uh, Yerusha, inheritance. A person dies, his sons inherit property. If it's not his son, that son will not inherit property unless there's a will. You can make a will. Or another example would be Yibam. Again, what's the mitzvah of Yibam in the Torah? The mitzvah of Yibam in the Torah says if a man dies without children, there is a mitzvah on his paternal brother, brother from the same father, to either marry the widow to perpetuate the seed of the deceased, or if he does not want to, or he's already married, or she does not want to, there's a ceremony Right, you've heard of this? You've, uh, there's a ceremony called Chalitza. Chalitza, fascinating ceremony. She takes off, he wears a special boot, like a Viking boot strapped all the way up on the leg, no sock, right? And she pulls the boot off his foot in front of a basin, and she spits in front of him, not in his face. Sorry, literally, <laughs> spits in his face. She spits in front of him, and she says, so shall be done to the man who does not rebuild. It's a said in Hebrew. Who does not rebuild his uh, brother's home. Chalitza. By the way, among Ashkenazim, we don't even give him the Yibam option. Even if he says he wants to marry his brother's wife, we do not practice Yibam. Ashkenazim do not practice Yibam. But we do have to have chalitza. A woman, a woman who does not have children from her husband, and there's a brother, she is not allowed to marry until she gets a chalitza ceremony. Chalitza is like a get for, for this particular usage. Um, I remember, you know, chalitza is pretty rare. You don't see so many chalitzas. You know, it doesn't happen that often. Have you ever seen? I, saw, well, I, I only saw one once. And I tell you what happened. It was a very interesting thing. Uh, the widow was, uh, it was uh, her husband was not religious and the widow was not religious, so she didn't care. But the, uh, the, 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 the dead brother's, the, uh, the, the dead man's brother was a Balshuva and he was very, very concerned that he wanted to give his sister-in-law chalitza. He wanted to follow the halacha. So she agreed to a chalitza just to humor him. She didn't know what it was at all. Uh, so she wasn't religious. Now, since chalitza is so rare, 
when people heard about it in Baltimore, 500 people came to, what? to watch what? the Chalitza. <laughs> and the woman walked in. The, the woman didn't care about this. The woman thought, it was, they told her this would be like a little thing, it'll take five minutes. It does take five minutes, it doesn't take a long time. She walks in and she sees 500 people staring at her. She almost fainted, like she said. She kind of broke down. They had to take, the rabbis had to take her into a, a private office. So there was kind of an invasion of privacy. So the truth of the matter is, uh, since I was kind of in the back of the 500 people, I, I didn't really, <laughs> I didn't really see it that well. But you can see it on YouTube. You can see, you can, you can see with Alicia. Oh no, no, not that one, not that one, not that one. But you can actually see. And it's interesting that uh, I once looked at a chalitza on YouTube, and it was actually very, very moving because, you know, it brought back, you know, to the wife, the widow. It brought back the memory of her husband, and to the brother. It brought back the memory of his brother. And they both were crying. They both were oh. crying. And they, I remember that they were passing tissues to each other. Because oh. each one was thinking about the one that was Nifter. So it was uh, beautiful in, in, that, in that particular way. But this is Chalitza. But now let me point out, this is, the, this is really a long answer to your, a long-winded answer to your question. <laughs> the only time there is Yibam or Chalitza, Yibam is the marriage, which we don't do today, uh, is only if the brother shares the same father. But if the brother, if the brother does not share the same father, even if they share the same mother, there is no requirement of a yibam or a chalitza, and the widow is free. So, consider this hypothetical. Again, this is pretty complicated hypothetical. Uh, a Jewish man impregnates a non-Jewish woman. She then converts, and the child is born. He then, after the conversion, impregnates her again, and another child is born, two boys. 20, 30, 40, 50 years later, one of those boys dies without a child. Does the other boy, I mean, he's a man by now, have to give Yibam or Chalitza? The answer is no, because although biologically those two brothers come from the same father, halachically, they do not share the same father because the second child has the paternity of the Jewish man. The first child does not. So when you ask me, what's the practical difference? Who's the father? Uh, this is exactly the practical difference, uh, whether it be Chalitza, Yerusha, for example. The second kid would get all of the father's property. Unless there's a will, the first kid would not. Okay? So now you understand a little bit why... Going back to your, uh, someone, someone asked the question, even if a non-Jew is married to a Jewish man and then converts, you have to wait three months because if you don't wait three months and there is a, a seven-month birth, how do we know if it was a post-conversion pregnancy or a pre-conversion pregnancy? Because if it's a post-conversion pregnancy, that would give the Jewish man paternity if it is a pre-conversion pregnancy, the Jewish man would not have paternity, and therefore you gotta wait three months in such a case. Now that does mean, think about this, this could be an enormous hardship. This means if a Jewish man is married to a Jewish woman, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, married to a non-Jewish woman, and that's forbidden, it's an intermarriage. But finally, you know, we were makariv them, so the woman is ready for an orthodox conversion. 
they have to be separated for three months, either before the conversion or after the conversion, to determine there's no pregnancy. Now, it's one thing to tell a single woman that you don't get married for three months. That's not such a big deal, usually. It's another thing to take a married couple and say, you've got to be separated. And what if the married couple has children already? You're, are you telling me that the husband and the wife cannot live under the same roof for three months? Which usually means the husband moves out. You know, that, that's usually what it means. This is an enormous hardship. I remember myself, a case, who were friends of ours, where uh, the Jewish man was married to a non-Jewish woman, and they became religious, and the woman converted, and the rabbi Paskins, that the husband, and they already, they already had a little daughter who was also converted, they had a child, that the, 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 the man had to move out of the house for three months. I mean, I still remember that this was like 40 years ago. The man was going absolutely crazy. He was going nuts with his daughter and this and that. It was, it was like a tremendous, tremendous, tremendous hardship. And yet, that is the halacha. But as I say, the way out is that many rabbis, not all, not all, many rabbis will rely on a pregnancy test. That uh, if uh, at the time of her conversion she has a pregnancy test that she is not pregnant, they will waive the uh, three-month requirement because uh, we assume there's no pregnancy. Uh, so that's what I do myself uh, when I'm faced with that type of situation. But there, w there are some rabbis that say no. Some rabbis will actually impose three months. And uh, you could imagine, uh, in the case of an intermarriage, uh, where there are children, little children, that's an enormously difficult point. Because again, we don't trust people to live in the same house and not have relations. Uh, in other words, if the halakha is, you can't have relations for three months, the only psaac we will tell them under those circumstances is you, the husband has to move out. He can't say, well, let me stay in the house and you know, whatever. That, that doesn't work. Uh, yeah? Um, back to the paternity thing. Yeah. Say two non-Jewish people have children and then only the parents can Okay. So, so let, let's, let's take that situation. Theoretically, that's possible. You know, there's no, there's no obligation to convert your non-Jewish children. Uh, right? Uh, Non-Jew, non-Jew, have kids, not Jewish. Both parents convert to Judaism. Maybe the kids are not interested. Uh, I think if they're young children, it would be extremely rare not to convert them, but they might be adult children, and they don't want to convert. So in such a situation, a conversion uh, also cuts away paternity and maternity. So technically, they are related to neither parent under those circumstances. Now, again, I, I do want to be very, very clear because some people here or might come from families, mixed families, that I know that sometimes sounds very, very harsh. I, I want to point out that when it comes to the love and the care and the gratitude and the emotional sharing that people have, and I don't mean to suggest you know, a person converts that wipes out, you know, you're not my mother, you're not my father. You know, that's not the way it works in real life. Uh, the person who raised you, the person who took care of you, you love them as a mother and a father. We're not talking about emotional feelings here. Uh, but halachically, there are certain consequences in terms of uh, yibum, in terms of inheritance, right? So uh, in a way, I don't mean to be cold about this because I'm not, I'm not denying 
the reality of human relationships. And you shouldn't either, meaning don't internalize these halachos as referring to how you relate to your family. They are halachos. So you have to you talk to a posek exactly how it plays out, but we're not talking about uh, you're not my father anymore, you're not my mother anymore. That's not uh, the way you look at it. Yeah. So I'm wondering about what you were saying about the moving out thing, because I have a friend right now who's doing your and her husband's Jewish. She's doing it, and she has a son from a previous marriage. And yeah. so he's, they, they told him, you can't, you have to wait until you're 13 to even do it, and he's going to Jewish day school and everything like that. Um, but for her, they told her, and she just told me this, they're having her husband move out, like, way in advance. She's, like, only, she's more than, like, Is that I think she's still, like, more than six months away from her, like, third Beit Din meeting. She's about to have her second. So and like she's totally worried about her son being traumatized. That's a big problem, but, but I, I think that might be a different dynamic. That might be not so much for pregnancy reasons. That might be in order to test her sincerity as mm-hmm. a convert, she has to agree not to live with a Jewish man oh, okay. in sin. Just in terms of like that being like right, right. So, so again, although in terms of pregnancy, you could do the three months after the conversion, but but many but they didn't will say you got to separate right away. In fact, many but they didn't will say even a year before the conversion. They, they be, now I'm a little surprised when there's a child involved, um, and I hope they're not discriminating because it's not his child. Uh, but but it, might, it might be that uh, they say ah, it's not your kid anyway, so. Yeah. Okay. I, I don't agree with that, but, but that might be what's going on. Okay, yeah. So, it's going to be tabled, but something that you said last week has just been bothering me all the yeah. time. Uh-huh. And it was that if um, a Jew can is required to, to break Shabbat to save another Jew's life, yep. but not they can't break Shabbat to save another Jew's life. Yeah, yeah. So this is, uh, this is actually considered to be one of the most difficult halacha, to understand in the totality of Jewish law. And all I can tell you is, there is a big difference between the letter of the law and how it is applied in practice. The letter of the law is actually very, very clear. And that is, the permissibility to violate the Shabbat is only to save the life of a Jew and not to save the life of a non-Jew. Now, I can't deny that statement. That is a statement in the Mishnah and in the Gemara, uh, that Shabbos cannot be desecrated to save the life of a non-Jew. However, in practice, we ignore this because we have different... I mean, let's take a very simple example. If, God forbid, uh, you're walking and a non-Jew has a heart attack, uh, are you allowed to drive him to the hospital? Are you allowed to call 911? Are you allowed to call Hatzalah? If I just read the Gemara, the answer would be no. But the practicalities is the answer is yes. Now, the reason that's given for the yes may not be ethically satisfactory, but it works practically. And that is, there is a concept, there is a concept that if a Jew would not endeavor to save the life of a non-Jew, that would incite a great deal of hatred and animosity from non-Jews who might literally kill Jewish people in retaliation and revenge. And therefore, my heter to violate the Shabbat for a non-Jew is that it ultimately may protect Jewish lives. Now, as I say, ethically, some people are not so comfortable because that, that still means you're not really... Yeah. Uh, but one way of looking at it in terms of ethically understanding it is it's not that non-Jewish lives are less important, but rather Shabbos is so important that you can only desecrate Shabbos for those who will keep the Shabbos. 
And therefore, those who don't keep the Shabbos, we don't desecrate. Now, you may ask me, well, then how come I could violate Shabbos for those who are not observant? They don't keep Shabbos. Yeah, they don't keep Shabbos now, but uh, since they're Jewish, they're, they're potentially... Yeah? So look at it this way. It's not that the non-Jew is less. It's that Shabbos is so great that, right, as the Gemara says, violate one Shabbos so the person will be able to keep many Shabbos. By the way, that's saying, Thank you. right? The, the, the hetero of violating Shabbos is better to violate one Shabbos now so this person will be able to keep many Shabbos. This is actually an interesting, I'm going to digress for a moment, totally off topic, but it's connected to this statement. You know, one of the, I don't know what Chabad's psak is, I don't know exactly what, uh, but I'll just tell you what the question is generally. That is, let's say you run an outreach organization, right? You run a, you know, you're a shaliach, whatever it is. And uh, your events or your services or your meals, you know that people are going to drive to your event. Are you allowed to invite somebody to your home, to your shul, to your Chabad house, to whatever it is, if you know that they are going to desecrate Shabbos by coming to you? Yeah, you know that. Now, normally, you're not allowed to cause a Jew to sin. That's called in front of a blind person. You don't put a stumbling block. But I can't cause people to sin. So am I allowed to cause somebody to sin uh, by inviting them? Uh, right? So this is a, this is a big shayla. It comes up a lot. Uh, and the basic psak, again, different rabbis will paskin differently, is that if this is a mechanism by which there is a chance, even though you don't know for sure, that in the long run, they may wind up keeping Shabbos. Then we go with the idea that even if they're desecrating Shabbos now, it's done for the purpose of them keeping many, many Shabbos. And not only that, but even for the single Shabbos, you may be ahead. It's hard to compare. On one hand, you're causing them to sin by driving to your, your, your minion. Okay. But what if they wouldn't come to your minion? How many more? In other words, it's hard to. In other words, it's not necessarily the case that they're worse off even for this Shabbos than they would be if they wouldn't come, because if they drive on this Shabbos and they spend three or four or five hours there, right? Look at all the things <laughs> that they are doing positively, and all the things negatively that they're not doing, right? So it might be they're actually coming out ahead. The only condition is you do have to offer them accommodations. In other words, you, you can't invite somebody who's going to drive unless you make it clear to them at some point that they're welcome to stay for the whole Shabbos and you will give them a comfortable place. Hmm. So at that point, you've given them the possibility of keeping the whole Shabbos and then they make their own decision and then uh, you can allow them to come because you're... Uh, ultimately hoping to bring them to a state where they're Shomer Shabbos. Does this, yeah. does this option have to be given like the first time they come? Or is it something that... Uh, well, you don't, well, you don't have to tell them every time, but you, 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 the first time they come, you should tell them that so any time you would like to stay, we'd love to have you stay for all of Shabbos. And explain to them the reason why? Yeah. Yeah, but, you know, again, you don't want to drive them away right. by saying, you know, you can't drive, you know, but, but in, a, in, a, in a nice, gentle way. You say, you know, it's a, it's a wonderful thing to experience a whole Shabbos from the beginning to the end, uh, etc. You know. 
so that's again. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, shluchim must have a whole set of psukim because certainly many people in Chabad houses drive. I mean, that's a very well known thing. So I am assuming they're following this type of this type of approach. Uh, Ramosha Feinstein was very strict on it. He basically you can't invite somebody if you know they're going to drive. Mm-hmm. But most poskim today have been uh, more lenient mm-hmm. on, on this on this matter, and it goes back to the same idea: better to desecrate one Shabbos in order that many Shabboses will be kept. Same idea. Let me give you another example where this comes up. Not not about Shabbos. A totally unrelated example. Do you know there's a halacha in the Shulchan Aruch that you're not allowed to give food to somebody? Or, or water even, if they're not going to make a bracha. I am not allowed to give somebody food or even a drink of water if they're not going to make a bracha because since it is a sin to eat or drink without a bracha, I am causing them to sin. This is in the book. Aishokhan says this. So now let's consider this problem. It's 100 degrees outside and your air conditioner is not working. So you call the repair uh, guy to show up, and the repair guy's not religious, right? And it's 100 degrees, and uh, the repair guy asks you for a glass of water. Are you supposed to say, well, I can't give it to you unless you make a bracha? <laughs> uh, right, what's going to happen? So Rav Shlomo Zalman Orbach Paskind, in such a case, you're, it's true that when you give him the water, you're causing him to sin by not making a bracha. But if you don't give him the water, you're going to cause a greater sin. He's going to hate Judaism. He's going to hate Orthodox Jews. He's going to think people are selfish. Uh, and therefore, if Shlomo Zalman Orbach says, not only do you give him water if he asks for it, but you offer, you offer it. You, you, in, you actually initiate it. You say, can I give you a drink? Can I give you something to drink? Because you see, you have to look at everything by comparison. You can't just say, oh, I'm causing you to sin. You have to ask yourself, well, what would I be causing if I don't give him the water? And if what I'm causing by not giving him the water is worse than what I'm causing by giving him the water, I go with the lesser thing. Same thing with Shabbos. Oh, I'm causing him to drive. Well, if I didn't cause him to drive, he would never have a Shabbaton. He would never be exposed to, to Shabbos. So maybe it's mutter to do something wrong if the long-term benefit is going to be positive. Now you have to be careful not to abuse that. That, that can be abused for sure. But there is such a cheshben based on the principle better to desecrate one Shabbos in order to have more Shabbos. But that's why there would be a difference between something like a Shabbaton and let's say a pure social event. For example, if I'm just making a bar mitzvah and I'm not going to, there's no educational component, I'm not going to be giving classes or, and I say, I say, I just invite people who are going to drive. Maybe that's usher. Just to invite people, just to show up, you know, if there's nothing like, if there's no program, so to speak, then maybe you shouldn't, right? That's a different thing. Uh, but, but, but when you have a program, a, a special meal that's geared to bring people closer to Judaism, that might be a different cheshben. So it really depends on how, why you're inviting them and what you're going to be offering them and the like. Yeah. How is the thing about um, violating one Shabbos in order to keep more Shabbos later, how is that any different from the train problem where you save one, you, save, you kill one person in order to save a whole group of people? 
Yeah, well, that's, a, that's an interesting analogy. In other words, we normally don't say that one life is more important than, uh, that we don't say many lives are more important than one life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I understand. Uh, it's, a, it's, a good, it's a good point, but on the other hand, uh, I think here the idea is, you know, you're dealing with one person, and uh, in such a situation, obviously, with respect to one person, I can't compare one person's Shabbos with another person's Shabbos, but I can certainly say about one person that for you to keep a hundred Shabbos is better than you keeping one Shabbos. I mean, so there's a clear, I think there's a clear gain in these types of situations. Well, you could also say that, like, letting a hundred people live is certainly better than letting one person live. Well, yeah, but you don't know that for sure. You don't know that for sure because it's Shayach. It's Shayach. I mean, you know, you could think of one person who may be greater than 100 people, right? I mean, we can imagine in our own uh, eyes that way. Mm-hmm. So that's a little different than I think this type of comparison, mm-hmm. okay? All right, so um, how did I get onto this? Uh, I don't know. I think it was one of the, <laughs> one of the questions that, that was raised. Okay, but does everyone understand why uh, even the uh, non-Jewish woman who's married to a Jewish man would have to wait three months, and the same thing if he's married to a non-Jewish man would have to wait three months for the same reason. The three months can be before or after the conversion, and as I say, you could get rid of the whole problem with a pregnancy, a pregnancy test. In fact, it's very common today. Today, it's very common, and I've done this uh, many, well, yeah, I've done it uh, a lot of times myself, in which, uh, let's say you have a Jewish man and a non-Jewish woman, and she converts, so they have to be remarried because their marriage was not valid. That we do the remarriage the same day she went to the mikvah. Uh, even though you might say, how could that be? We didn't wait three months. Uh, so we're so mech, we, we rely on pregnancy tests or something like this. Uh, if they separated before? No, even if they, didn't, even if they didn't separate before. That's what I'm saying. Many, many uh, postkin will allow a pregnancy test to eliminate this. Mm-hmm. Although, as I say, I mean, the one rub that I knew, he was a Chabad rub, it's interesting that. Uh, he insisted on, uh, on absolutely three months. He was an older rough. He was a, um, he's not alive anymore. Uh, anyone here from Australia? Uh, no, okay. So in Australia, the, the, uh, the head shaliach in Australia is a Rav Pinchas Feldman. So this was his father, Rav Mendelfeld. Rav Mendelfeldman, Zechron Lebracha, was actually a shaliach of the Friedeke Rebbe, going all the way, all the way back then. And he, I remember, uh, he uh, made them separate Three months, uh, even though they had a child. But uh, many rabbinim are, are make alone with pregnancy tests uh, today. Okay, so that's kind of what I wanted to share with you about, uh, about conversion. And uh, we now move to a new topic, which is kind of related, really. And that I, want, I want to talk about marriage and divorce, generally. We've been talking about uh, reproduction, having children, abortion, right? We've been talking about those things. Let's talk about uh, marriage, uh, marriage itself. Uh, first, uh, there is a mitzvah we know of, of being fruitful and multiplying. Is there a mitzvah to get married? In other words, uh, is marriage just a means to prove vu, be fruitful and multiply? Or is marriage in itself considered to be a mitzvah? Let's assume a person knows, uh, either the man or the woman or both, that they're not able to have children. Is there still a mitzvah on them to enter into uh, what is called marriage? In other words, is marriage a means to an end? Or is marriage intrinsically something holy and something something good? So the truth of the matter is, uh, the Rambam, 
the Rambam actually says in Sefer HaMitzvahs that marriage itself is a mitzvah. Marriage itself is a mitzvah. And there's a beautiful interpretation of this uh, in an earlier event in the Chumash. Do you remember uh, one of the, uh, when, when Rachel says to Yaakov, Rachel, like, uh, Leah keeps on having all these kids and Rachel has no children. And uh, Rachel says to her husband Yaakov, uh, he says, give me children, meaning pray for me to have children. And without children, I want to die. She says, without children, I am like a, or I, well, I am like a dead person. Either I want to die or I'm like a dead person. So if you remember, Yaakov said something that is really, really pretty shocking. He said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you children? In other words, I don't have a problem. I have plenty of kids. God has withheld children from you. So why are you bothering me? Now this is a very, very shocking statement to make. And indeed the Medrash, Chazal, actually criticized Yaakov for this. And Chazal say, is this how you talk to a woman in pain? By saying, it's your problem because I don't have a problem. I have kids. You don't talk that way. So how do we how do we defend Yaakov? Yaakov is a great tzaddik, right? Uh, Yaakov would you can't just say oh Yaakov was insensitive. There has to be some deeper meaning for what Yaakov is doing. So there's a sefer, a classic sefer in Jewish philosophy. It's called the Akedas Yitzchak. I'm not referring to the Akedah, Just the author was Rabbi Yitzchak Arama, who was one of the great uh, philosophers among the Rishonim. And he says the following that it's true that Yaakov maybe said something that Chazal say was not right, but he said it out of love, not out of disdain. And here, here's how it works. When she makes the statement, if I don't have children, I might as well be dead, she's basically saying the only purpose of a marriage is to have kids. And that, that hurts Yaakov. Yaakov is saying, is that all your life is? Is that all who you are? There is something kadosh in our relationship, even if there are no children. So his, what you might call insensitive response, comes because he wants her to realize that having children is a beautiful thing and it's a very important thing. But it is not the sole definition of the holiness of a marriage. A marriage is holy, godly, because of the relationship of the husband and the wife to each other, even if it doesn't turn into children. Is that yeah. also with Elkanah and Hannah? That's exactly right, that's exactly right. And that's what Elkanah is telling Hannah. Why, right, Hannah is crying, she has no children. And Elkanah says, I am better to, to you than, than 10 sons, meaning, Rejoice. Now, listen, infertility is a problem that all people you know, may suffer, meaning any religion. Certainly for a religious Jew, infertility is probably more painful than for other people because of the great mitzvah of having a child. And there's an organization, uh, they have a website, it's called A-Time. It's an abbreviation for something. 
A-T-I-M-E, and it's a religious organization that gives uh, chizuk, gives support for couples that are going through infertility, both in terms of the avenues they could explore to have children, but also the comfort that they need, to, you know, the comfort and the chizuk, that if, God forbid, they, they don't have children, but uh, they could still, you know, relish the relationship that they have. That's a very, very important idea, that marriage is not just a means to have children, although it is, but marriage is good in and of itself. What, what does the Torah say? Lo tov, heyosa adam levada. It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helpmate to be opposite. By the way, the Mephorshim say, why isn't it good for man to be alone after all? This is in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, Adam has whatever he wants, except for one tree he can't eat from, right? He has everything. He doesn't need a wife to cook for him. He doesn't need a wife to do laundry for him. What's so bad about being alone when you're in Gan Eden? And the Mephorshim say, because when man is in a state of aloneness, he has the infinite capacity to take whatever he wants. But he has no one to whom to give. And Hashem is the ultimate giver because Hashem does not take. Hashem only gives. And Hashem is called Tov. Right? So man cannot be Tov. Man cannot be godly unless man gives. So marriage was created so we become givers rather than takers. It is not good. Meaning man cannot be good in a state of aloneness. Okay? So that, that's what marriage is. And... Uh, Again, I mean, it's not, I mean, I mean you're, you know, you're, not, you're not yet there in this Parsha, at least most of you, uh, but uh, it's important that even when you become Abba and Ima, even when you become father and mother, you still have to be husband and wife. Uh, and that sometimes goes by the wayside because we're so busy with our children that we don't really focus on the relationship. Um, the Rebbe himself used to come every afternoon. He used to come home in the middle of his... No, day, to have tea with his with the Rebbitson every day, and he once told somebody he says, "This is a, this is as important to me as putting on tefillin." That's, that's something to think about. And it was funny because you know there were a lot of, you know the Rebbitson often uh, there were people who would be over talking to the Rebbitson you know whatever it is, uh, and when the Rebbe would like show up in the middle like they would like they would like jump out of the window they were so <laughs> just in the middle he just shows up, and he said he he said you can stay if you want you know it's okay but uh, they kind of they kind of just jumped out of the window whatever mm. whatever, whatever it was yeah. Um, I was told that there's three categories of brachas, um health, pranisa, and children. But yeah. that some marriage is, and maybe that's not correct. Yeah. Is that correct? Have you, have you correct? Well, when you say three types of brachas are, are, are what? What, what, what are you? I guess that they were saying, like, you, know, you ask for brachas, of course you could ask for anything, but that there's three primary categories, major categories. It's yeah, uh, children, children, life, which is hell, and, uh, and, and, uh, and uh, parnasa. So, marriage, how would marriage fit into that if you can't have children anymore? Uh, well, a marriage fits in because it's life. Marriage falls under life. Because indeed it says that a person who's not married uh, is not fully alive. Because once again, uh, the idea is that it's the union of male and female that creates a, a perfection. A person not married is half. Either I'm the male or I'm the female, whichever half I am, I'm only half. And I complete myself that way. So I, I, would, I would consider that to fall within life. 
life itself. Okay? So now, what I want to go over is a little bit, is I want to go over the structure of the Jewish marriage ceremony because it's very, very interesting. It actually was two different ceremonies that used to be a year apart, and now we stick them together. So when you go and you watch a chasna, you are seeing two different things that used to be separated by 12 months. Uh, stage one of marriage is called Eirusin. Now, this is very important because modern Hebrew is going to confuse you. In modern spoken Hebrew, the word Eirusin means engagement. So somebody says, I am making an Eirusin. That means like a chayim or a vort, uh, right? Eirusin. But that's modern Hebrew. Uh, that's not the language of the Torah, and that's not the language of Chazal in the Gemara, the Mishnah of the Gemara. Rather, the way it worked would be the following. Uh, if you would be getting married in the time of the Torah, or even in the time of the Gemara, right? You'd be in the time of the Gemara. The way it would work would be this. At some point, uh, when you've decided to get married, the chassan would give you a ring. It doesn't have to be a ring. And it's something worth money, a penny, a pruta, and say in front of two witnesses, you are married to me with this money or this ring. It doesn't have to be. A ring is a minute. There are reasons for it. But the, the point is, Kedushin is effected by giving some monetary value to the woman. And when she says yes, that was the end. That was called Erison. She is now, a, she's not engaged. She is a married woman. If she commits adultery, she's high of Misa. She gets the death penalty. But the minag was, she then went back to her father for a whole year. The marriage was not consummated. For an entire year. She's a married woman, but her parents are still supporting her, if, if she was being supported by her parents, for an entire year. And during that year, she is called Anarusa. But she is an Aishasis. She is married. Now, one year later, is part two. Everybody would get together. Seven brachos would be recited. A kasuva would be written. And then the marriage would be consummated by, by bringing her into his house. And that is called nisuin. And uh, the woman is now called a nisua, a married woman. So erusin is just the giving of the ring, or the money, really. Nesuin are sheva brachos, kisuva, and consummation. But consummation didn't have to be at that point. I mean, it would be actual intercourse, but it could just be bringing her into his home. That's really the consummation we're talking about. And that's called nisuin, which means uh, they didn't have a ksuva in stage one. And they didn't have sheva brachas in stage one. Everything would be late, would be at that later point. Okay, erusin and nesuin. Now, if you look at a Jewish wedding, you will actually see that we combine erusin and nesuin. Because let's just look at... I'm not, not going to talk right now about the pre-chuppah events. Let's just talk about the chuppah events. There is the giving of the ring. There is the reading of the ksuva. There is sheva brachos. 
And then the chasna and the kala go into a private room. So the giving of the ring is erson. The kesuva, the sheva brachos, and the yichud is nesu. Yichud is the private room. Is the nesuin. So in the time of the Gemara, and certainly the time of the Torah, they were separated by a year. So who unified them? Who put them together? And why were they put together? So the unification of Erison and Nisuin actually was in the time of Rashi. Some, some in fact, credited to Rashi. Rashi lived, uh, it's after the Gemara, Rashi lived in the 10 hundreds. And Rashi felt that a prolonged period of erusin was too hard for a married couple and it was conducive to immorality. Immorality either in the sense of committing adultery or immorality even in terms of the man and the wife being together because until there were the severed they were not allowed to do that. So therefore Rashi collapsed it and made a takana, made an enactment that it should be one single ceremony. But originally it was two ceremonies. And that explains something that you might notice. The halacha is that uh, the marriage ceremony should always be accompanied by a glass of wine, because it's a simcha. Now, you may notice the following. Let's go over the actual order of the marriage ceremony, and then you'll, you'll, you'll see the question. The chasen and the kala are under the chuppah. Okay, well, I'll talk a little later about the preliminary stuff. They're both under the chuppah. So the rabbi who is in charge of marrying them, he's called the misader kedushin, the one who arranges the marriage, recites a blessing over the wine, berei priyagafen. Then he recites a blessing over the mitzvah of marriage. And then the chasen and the kala take a sip of the wine. Remember, they were fasting, or many people were fasting that day. This is the first thing they have. And then the chasan gives the ring, puts the ring on the kala's finger, hariyat mekudeshet li, right? You are married to me with this ring, according to the laws, kedas, Moshe, the Yisrael, right? According to the laws of Moshe and Yisrael. So they do the seven rachas first? No, 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 they didn't do seven. No, they didn't no, do seven brachas. They did, they did a blessing. On, that's not seven brachas. They did the blessing on the wine and a blessing on the mitzvah of marriage. Only two brachas. Now, yeah, yeah. So, so there are many halachas about witnesses. Uh, the witnesses have to be two. They have to be Jewish. They have to be men. They cannot be related to the chasan or the kala or to each other. And most importantly, they have to be halachically observant, so they have to be Shomer Shabbos witnesses. I remember, it still embarrasses me a little bit, I was talking to a Rebbe of mine uh, at a wedding once, and uh, somebody went over to the Rebbe and he wanted the Rebbe to be a witness under the chuppah. So the Rebbe said, well, you know, I don't want to be a witness under the chuppah because, I don't know, maybe I chew, I chew my nails by accident on Shabbat, so I feel I'm not... So the guy then, then he said, okay, you be a witness instead. You, you know, I mean, wow. What am I supposed to do? I mean, my, my own Rebbe said he felt he wasn't religious enough, so how could I say that I was? Uh, but whatever it was, but that's important, okay? So two, two men, 
Jewish, not related to each other or to, uh, to the chassan or the kala, uh, and uh, halakhically observant. That's why the rab will often tell them, uh, before you witness the marriage, do tshuva in your heart. So in case you are a sinner, Hashem forgives your averus, and then uh, you're able to be a kosher witness. Now this is not sheva brachus. This is a blessing over the wine, and a blessing over the mitzvah of getting married. Okay. Now, so then the ring ceremony is given. Okay, the ring is given, and then a second cup of wine is poured. A second cup of wine, upon which seven brachos are recited. The first one being, once again, Borei Pri Hagafet. So here's the question. Why do you have two cups of wine? You have two cups of wine. Uh, just have one cup of wine that covers the marriage ceremony. Why do you need two cups of wine? The answer is because originally these were two ceremonies that were a year apart. It's only now they're all together. But we have one, the first cup of wine is for the Erusin ceremony, and the second cup of wine is for the Nesuin ceremony. Okay? So this actually means it's a different picture than you would think, because the picture you have under a chuppah is that the Sheva Brachos is the end of the chuppah. You look at the Sheva Brachos as the end, it's not the end, it's the beginning of part two. In other words, part one are blessing over wine and blessing over mitzvah of marriage and then sipping the wine. Chasan giving ring to Kala with Hareyat Mukhidajah. That's part one. Part two is Sheva Brachos and Yichudrum. That's part two. So Sheva Brachos is the beginning of the second ceremony, not the end of it. And the Yichud room is supposed to represent basically the chasan bringing the kala into his home. And that's why halakhically it's very, very proper that the chasan has to have some ownership of the Yichud room and that ownership is by paying a rental that the chasan should, should actually say, pay a dollar to have, you know, it's a limited ownership, to, have, to own that Yichud room for an hour or whatever it is. Because it's important, because the whole essence of yichud is, I mean, obviously it's not, it's not consummation, <laughs> hopefully not. I mean, they're not physically consummating the marriage in the yichud room, but the yichud room is bringing the kala into his home. So it has to be his home. So a rental home is also your home. You don't have to own it, but you do have to rent it. So uh, a chassan should actually pay, uh, you know, a dollar or whatever it is to rent this particular room. That's very important because it has to be his home. That is the, the idea of yichud. Mm-hmm. Bringing her into my home is how I make, make nesumen. Okay, now there are many, many customs we'll talk about, but I want you to understand the basic essence of the ceremony. The idea of erusin and nesuin, and today we do it all together in one big ceremony, and that is why we have uh, two glasses of wine. Now, there's also another Sheva Brachos, which is a separate thing, and that is, that's Sheva Brachos after the Suda. There is a festive meal. Meal, and at the when end of... The huh? When is the Ksuba? 
the kesuva is read between Erisin and Nesuva. Now, now, this is an, an interesting point as well. Let me explain something about the reading of the kesuva. What is, first of all, what is a kesuva? Right? So a kesuva is a document signed by witnesses, and uh, essentially uh, the husband declares that he will fulfill all the obligations of a Jewish husband during the marriage, and also in the event of his death or divorce, he will give his wife sums of money. Maybe we'll talk a little later about what the money would be. And that's the ksuva. The ksuva is signed by witnesses. Again, same. They could be the same witnesses or different witnesses, you know, but, they, but the same requirements. Men, two, non-related, Shomer Shabbos. The ksuva is the woman's property. She has to know where it is at all times. If she ever loses her kasuva, she is not allowed to live under the same roof with her husband until she gets a replacement kasuva. There, there are ways of replacing kasuvas, uh, but until uh, that's replaced, they're not allowed to be under the same, same roof, right, the kasuva. Uh, some people hang the kasuva on the wall, other people keep it private, but either way, the woman has to know where her kasuva is. Now, it doesn't have to be on her person. She could keep it in a safe deposit box, she could give it to her mother, uh, but she has to know where it is at all times. She doesn't have to have it with her, but she has to know where it is. So if they go on vacation, there's no chiv on the woman to take. Some, some women will take it, but there's no chiv to take the ksuva with her, but she has to know where it is. Yeah. Have you ever seen like, um, like a slight technical error in the order of you know, like, what, 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 what would the technical error be? Let's say, like, he doesn't pay for the $1 for the hoodroom, or, like, they misorganize yeah, the well, timing. Well, yeah, well, yeah, they're, 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 you actually have to redo. I mean, there, there, are, there are times where, uh, I will tell you this, where the, the wedding, the ceremony was done improperly. was done improperly, and the rabbi would just call them in privately and kind of redo it privately. Now, you don't have to announce it to the people. You don't have to tell the whole crowd this was a puzzle marriage. <laughs> uh, but, some, so, but sometimes we have to redo it. Sometimes we say, hey, let's just... Which means we need two witnesses, right, okay. right? So we do have to have two. I mean, the rabbi can be one of the witnesses. The rabbi himself can be one of the witnesses, but mm-hmm. we'll need at least one other witness. You don't need witness. ten people there. You do need ten people, the chatzchila, but 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 if that would cause, uh, you you should have ten people actually. Uh, I mean, the chassan and the rabbi count for two of them, mm. but you do need uh, eight other people. So. Yeah, uh, well, you talking about it's like it's a second marriage, or no, 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 like they realize something was not done right. Children. Well, well. That, listen, people getting remarried happens all the time. I mean, for example, uh, intermarriages, right? We remarry them because they weren't married validly. Or people who didn't have a religious marriage, two Jews. So yeah, you can marry people if they've, if they've had children. Uh, you know, um, it's an interesting machlokas uh, for second marriages. Should children go to second marriages? Uh, meaning, let's say a couple got divorced. So, uh, and then they're getting remarried. Should the children? No, not the no, no, different different people. Should the children from the first marriage uh, go to the wedding of their parent in the second marriage? 
different customs. Some people basically say that uh, they should not because that's kind of being unfaithful to the to their parents. Others say it's 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 okay. You know, I I I don't think you can give a definitive rule here. I think it depends on on how people will be hurt or or whatever 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 it would be. It's really interesting that you say that you have to read your marriage sometimes, but if it wasn't done perfectly, because you hear so many stories, or not so many, but a few stories of how people like give someone something of value and say, hurry up, because I should land there are two witnesses, and then they're considered married and they have to get a divorce. Yeah, so that's kind of the opposite problem, meaning... Us, right, but if it's so easy to get yeah. married by right, mistake, so then easy. how could you make a mistake in the whole marriage? <laughs> well, well, well the, the, yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Uh, the answer basically is that you have to err on the side of strictness in both directions, meaning to say, uh, if we did something 95% right but it was 5% off, we want to be 100% sure, so we'll do it again. On the other hand, if somebody did something that's 5% right and 95% wrong, uh-huh. we're going to say, oh, maybe we're strict that it might be a good marriage. Now, there's uh-huh. The point basically is you're always going to go on the strict side in both, in both ways. But for example, if you didn't pay a dollar for the yichud room, uh, that probably wouldn't be a problem because we assume that uh, if you signed a contract with the wedding hall and they gave you the right to use the room, so uh, that gave you your your your. And also, he'll, your bring her, he'll bring her into his house. Yeah, but there won't be witnesses. That's the problem. In other words, to bring you the house has to have witnesses, right? So that's why we need witnesses. The witnesses under the chuppah also have to watch. Mm-hmm. Right? Have you ever room. seen that? Have you ever, ever seen how it works with the Yichud room? Uh, the Yichud room is you have the, the same two witnesses under the chuppah who saw the ring ceremony. They have to go, they have mm-hmm. to escort the chasna and the kala in the Yichud room. They have to inspect the Yichud room to be sure there are no hidden doors or people hiding under beds <laughs> because it has to be private. So they do a, an inspection of the Yichud room. Then they stand outside the door. The door is closed. And the chasna and the kala stay uh, a minimum of like seven minutes. They can stay longer, but uh, and they eat, they eat, they also eat in there. They exchange gifts. Those are minhagim, those are not halakos. But they have to, the witnesses have to stand outside the room to be sure that nobody, nobody comes in. And so bringing him to his house would, would, would be a problem as, in terms of yichot because there are no witnesses mm. there. Unless you bring witnesses, bring witnesses to your house. And they do the same, the same thing. Yeah. I heard that if someone gambles, they can't be a witness. What if, like, how, is that true? Yeah, so that's a good question. Yeah, well, that is, that is true, but you have to define it. Uh, yeah. There are a lot of ways a witness could be disqualified. Obviously, if he doesn't keep Shabbos, he's not kosher, etc. But one of the ways a witness is puzzle is if he, if he bets, if he gambles. Gamblers are considered to be puzzle uh, for witnesses. But we paskin, that is only somebody who makes most of his income by gambling. Oh, wow. Meaning if he simply... Because he's a professional gambler. If he simply once in a while bets on a, on a sports game or, or whatever it would or be, buys uh, or buys a lottery ticket, right, that will not, dis, that will not disqualify him. You're like, okay, so if he plays cards, it's not... No, no, so that, unless it's like, you know, maybe you know, there are people who make a living from poker. In fact, there was a Shaila, I think a yeshiva had recently, some from guy, like won one of these uh, poker championships, like, uh, like $200,000. <laughs> And he's such a tzaddik, he wants to give like all of it to a yeshiva. Uh, so the question is, 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 is the yeshiva allowed to take oh, money? Uh, 
Well, it could be, it could be, maybe he couldn't be a witness if this is if, if he makes his living from um, gambling. That is more of a problem. Uh, so, why, so why it is. Why wouldn't they be able to take the money though? Huh? Why wouldn't they be able to accept his tzedakah? Well, because part of the idea is that money that is obtained by professional gambling is considered to be, in a way, stolen money. It's considered to be like gezel. So, oh, okay. it's like a yeshiva shouldn't get money that was earned on Shabbos, right? Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are a lot of things that you have to look at at the source of the money. Um, a tzedakah should not take money that was obtained by theft or by immoral behavior. <laughs> or by desecration of Shabbos, or by gambling, which was violation of halacha. So the money is tainted money. So one should not take that money. Yeah. Didn't we learn at the heart surgery that if somebody committed a sin, <laughs> another Jew is not Right, right, right. That, that, uh, that's a very, very excellent, uh, very excellent comparison. The idea that uh, just as if taking of the heart was forbidden, but once it was done, you're allowed to uh, take it, so you want to say the same thing should be true for uh, money that was earned improperly, but once the sin was done, uh, why can't uh, a yeshiva or its a benefit? Excellent point. I, want, I need to think about it. It's a very excellent uh, comparison. It's, mm. good, it's a very good point. But still, I, I do want to say that the, the halacha seems to be that if the money comes from a bad origin... Uh, you. Now again, it could be that it's not a prohibition, but it, it, but it was a righteous practice not to take things that... Uh, there is a concept that when you build Kedusha, when you build Torah, when you build a Hasidus, every aspect of it should be holy and pure. And if some aspect of it is not holy or pure, that may affect the whole thing. That's why, by the way, you know... Um, when they founded uh, Mea Sharem, all these different uh, communities in Yerushalayim, uh, they insisted that religious Jews do all of the construction work. This goes back to the 1800s. This is not mm. recent. Because they wanted like tzaddikim to do everything, to put down the bricks and mm. put down the pipes, because they thought if you have influences that were not holy, that's going to affect the whole edifice. So there's something, probably something to do with that idea. Okay. Um, alrighty. Oh, oh, so let me just explain something about the reading the Ksuba. So the truth of the matter is, there's no halachic reason to read a Ksuba. A ksuba has to be signed. That's all. You sign it and give it. Why do you read it? There's no reason to read it. The only reason why we read the Ksuba is we want to make a break between Erison and Esuin. So reading the Ksuba is simply separating between two halves. See, and that's why, in truth, uh, a sermon or a drasha would be just as good. But the custom is to read the ksuva and maybe give a drasha too. Uh, but really, reading the ksuva does not have halachic significance. Uh, writing and signing the ksuva is what is important, uh, not the reading. Uh, now, the reading ksuva can be can be a little delicate. I don't know if I talked about this, because the ksuva sharply differentiates between virgin brides and non-virgin brides. Frankly, there is more money in the, in the ksuba that a husband would pay his wife if she's a basula than if she's not a basula. And the question becomes, all right, most people don't listen to a ksuba, most people don't understand a ksuba, you know, ksuba's mumbled, you know, whatever it would be. But uh, for yeshiva people who are sensitive to ksubas and they like to listen to ksubas, the ksuba might, the reading of the ksuba publicly might create an invasion of privacy. I mean, I mean, let's assume a woman is a balas chuba, 
and she's not a virgin. Right? So the ksuva will reflect that. And you're reading it, you're reading it in front of a hundred people. All right, so maybe five of them will understand it. But, uh, you know, so what do you do? What do you do about that? What if, for example, uh, uh, the woman is not a virgin, but she would prefer that that not, she and her husband prefer that it not be uh, mentioned in a public way. So the halacha permits that the ksuva can be read in a way that is different than it's written. Even if the ksuva says non-virgin, right, so that's actually my specialty. You know, I, I get invited. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's, it's kind of cute. I get, invited, I get invited to weddings where I don't know the chassan or the kala sometimes, but apparently, I don't know, my, my reputation has spread that I'm able to, I'm able to ad-lib a ksuva. Right? So, so they call me. They call me. Just read the read it like a ksuva for a virgin, and everything will be fine. Right? So I've gotten a little a tiny reputation, a reputation for that. But but that, but that is the halacha. The halacha is that you are permitted to to ad lib. Now, what's a more serious question though is, well, can you write the ksuva? for a virgin, as long as the chassan is not being deceived. I mean, some have made a, a bigger argument. Instead of just ad-libbing it, where the ksuva says non-virgin, but you just read it you know, in a certain way, why can't you write the ksuva for a virgin? Now, if the chassan doesn't know, he's being deceived. But if the chassan knows and agrees, right? so some poskim have even permitted something much more, not only ad-libbing in the reading, but they have actually permitted writing the sula in the ksuva, uh, but that's a big machlokas uh, postcom, so that would depend. I mean, the one who makes the decision is the rabbi who is marrying you. The Masader Kedushin is the one who approves the form of the ksuva. So if this is an issue, this is something that uh, would be discussed with the Masader Kedushin. Yeah? Why would it make a difference to the chasin if she was a virgin or not? Or deceived based on what? Well, well uh, it, it does make a difference. Uh, again, emotionally, for some, for some people, for some people, uh, they, they want to be the first, so to speak, uh, that they feel that the closeness will not be as intense. Now, again, no, no, no. no well, well halachically, the difference is the amount of the ksuba. The ksuba is more. So halachically, it's a question of how much money. In fact, I, I just had a question. In fact, it was very, very interesting. I mean... Uh, a chassan who just got married two days ago approached me a week ago, like three, a few days before the wedding, saying he just discovered, he just discovered that his kala was not a basula and uh, it bothered him a lot. And, you know, whatever, we had, we had to talk, talk, you know, talk sense into him. Uh, but apparently, again, I, I'm, not, I'm not defending anything. I'm just saying that apparently for some people it is an emotional issue. And therefore, uh, you have to be on. You know, people have to be honest. People just have to be honest. That that's what's going on here. Um, and honesty, it should be on both sides. I don't. I don't mean to suggest only women have to be honest. People should be honest. That's all. Because sometimes they can have even things that you think are not important uh, can have repercussions. So these things. Think about. Okay. So the reading of the ksuva is not really part of the ceremony. It's to make a break between erusin and nisuin. Okay. Now, the Sheva Brachos after the wedding meal are a different thing. That's, uh, those are the same as the Sheva Brachos for the whole week that, that, you, that you do that. Okay, that's part of the celebration of the wedding. Okay.
Alrighty. Uh, all right. So you all take care. And uh, I, I, I'm not sure if uh, uh, Rebbe Sengishtetner told you this. I, I, I'm not going to be teaching you next week at the regular time. I think we're, we're doing it at 7, 7 p.m. Okay. So we will see you in the evening. Take care. Thank you. Okay.